Okay. Why don't we just just going to open in prayer, and then after that we're going to dig into our latest instalment of the of the Nehemiah series. Just to say, if you were here last week, time was so much against us that we had to really cut the sermon in half. So I just did the first half, um, and a number of people came up to me and, and said we'd really like to hear the second half because there's some quite. I guess intriguing or specific application to the points I was making. So what we what, what I've said is is that I'm gonna I'm gonna just re-record the sermon and then we'll put the whole thing and then we'll put that on the website. Okay. So if if you wanted if you um, if you want to find out the whole thing from last week, then um, I'm gonna re-record that on Wednesday. So it should be up in about a week's time, roughly. Is that okay? So let's pray. Ask God to help us today. Um, Father, we just thank you so much for um, the significance of. This gathering in this room, on the face of it, pretty unimpressive. Thank you that when you're, when you're here amongst us, anything can happen. And Lord, we, I, just, I pray that we would be confident in you as we hear your word, that you're going to say some things. It's not, just, we're not just, it's not just a routine or a ritual, something that we do because we do. We do it because we, we believe that your word is living and active. We believe that things happen. We believe that you want to speak. And that for some reason you've chosen to, you've chosen the medium of preaching the scriptures as one way of doing that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak into people's hearts. We pray people would get the right end of the stick. We pray for just a real spiritual wisdom and understanding to be on us as we hear the word, that we wouldn't miss it. Pray against distraction. Pray against just people being distracted so much. Life is so full with so many things. They're probably happening in an hour and a half's time onwards. So many things looming. Pray for grace to be able to leave them there. And to be able to be in the moment and live fully in the moment of what you're doing. So that we wouldn't miss good things that you want to speak into our soul. Pray for that. Just submit to your presence here, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would, as you work invisibly among us, you'd just be doing some beautiful things. Amen. Amen. So, uh, would, those of you that I haven't been with us for a while, we're doing a series on a book called Nehemiah, which was written, I think, about 445 BC. And just, uh, I know I kind of do a bit of a recap every week. Sorry for those of you that are here every week. Um, but kind of, I guess, helps refresh us all. Um, I'm assuming that you don't spend the whole week meditating on Nehemiah. So, probably good to just recap freshly for those of us that have heard it. Um, Nehemiah lives in Persia, but he's a Jew. Lives in Persia because a couple of generations before, uh, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians. And the ba- when the Babylonians, who were the world power at the time, their strategy often would be, when they destroyed a city, would be to exile and scatter people to kind of reduce the sort of, I guess, the potency of people groups that would have been against them and unified against them. They thought, how are we going to break the, the resistance, just exile them? And so many of the Jews were exiled out of Jerusalem into Persia, it's about 140 years before this story, so it would have been Nehemiah's ancestors. But he still carries Jerusalem in his heart because in that, in that kind of in that dispensation, if you like, Jerusalem represented the presence of God, the purposes of God, the city of God. And so he carries it in his heart. Some Jews visit, he finds, he inquires, how's Jerusalem? They say it's broken down, it's in a mess. And he, his heart is broken, he seeks God. And God really puts a dream in his heart. God, God begins to birth something in his spirit to go back and to rebuild the walls. 
And so he, he goes to the king and he gets resources from the king for this project. He then takes people with him and they begin this work and it's fraught with opposition and difficulty from the start. Um, and for the last few weeks we've been looking at various difficulties, oppositions from without. Two weeks ago, I mean, outright attack, opposition within last week, injustice among the community of God's people, um, people having to sell their relatives to other fellow Jews because they owed them so much money and they, others were exacting interest. It was a real mess. And so we're up to chapter six now, but I just want to kind of paint the picture of much tension and difficulty and opposition. Now, the reason why we're interested in this story in 21st century London is because it's a picture pointing towards Jesus uh, building, uh, rebuilding his church. Not a building, his church being a community of people. And that's really what we're focusing on, why we're getting excited about it and stirred up by it, is that this points towards that. This isn't just it, it points towards something much greater, an eternal thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And when he, when he said that, he wasn't talking about huge cathedrals and buildings, he's talking about a people that God was going to call out to be gathered and joined together as a beautiful dwelling place for his presence. Um, Jesus is excited about his church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus laid down his life for his church. To, to Jesus, the church is the big deal. When, when the apostle Paul, before he was the apostle Paul, was persecuting the church, Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus felt it as if it was himself. Why? Because the church is his body. The church is his bride. He loves the church. And so it's really important that we love the church because um, we're, we're about Jesus and that's what he's about. So that's why we're looking at it. That's where we're getting into. So two weeks ago, enemies without. Last week, enemies within. What's going to happen this week? Chapter 6. We're going to read up to, up to and include in verse 15. It's going to come up. Here we go. Thank you very much, Ruth. Now, when Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambala and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakapiferim in the plain of Ono. How could you, how could you not meet somewhere called that? Uh, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. 
but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to all these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. So two weeks ago, enemies without. Last week, enemies within. This week, enemies without and enemies within. Joy! <laughs> it just doesn't stop. It is pressure, pressure, pressure the whole time. Um, now, do you remember when we did our series that we called No Retreat, No Surrender, when we looked at spiritual opposition and how it works? What we said was this, is that um, the way spiritual opposition works, the way that kind of the, the um, forces of darkness, if you like, evil powers work in trying to uh, oppose believers is primarily through distraction or deception. Do you remember that? And, and both lead to destruction. So the aim is either to distract in order to destroy or to deceive in order to destroy. Well, you see both of those things in this story today. And we, we, just, just to show you just an example of how those things work quickly outside of Nehemiah. Remember when there's a time where, um, where um, Jesus started to predict his crucifixion and Peter said to him, no, Lord, this will surely not happen to you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. He's like, wow. What Jesus was saying there was, was that Peter's attempt out of a good heart to keep Jesus from the cross was a satanic distraction. That's what was going on. And so Jesus used these really strong words because he recognised that actually if, if his heart gave any room at all to the notion, oh, Maybe I don't need to be crucified. That would, and, and to be distracted away from that, actually the plan of God to save us through the death of his son would fail and but would lead to all of our destruction. So, so it, something is coming from a good heart, but it's just a distraction, but it's coming from a good heart and it can look nice, can be satanic. Okay? And then uh, an example of um, deception is that the Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, the word angel means messenger. So the role of an angel is, is, is a messenger of God. So it says that Satan disguises himself as a messenger of light, which means Satan disguises himself as a messenger from God, which means one of Satan's most um, popular ways of deceiving people is by planting a thought into your head and making you think it's from God. Very popular. I mean, really popular. Um, because he, Satan knows that if you're a believer, then you really, you really want to know what God says. And you've got a soft heart. And man, you really, you know, and if you think God's saying something, then you're going to really be affected by that. So if he can twist a bit of scripture or give you some kind of spiritual thought or make you think it's from God, or even, even an actual voice, you know, it's from God. If he can do that, then he's really got you in a nasty place. So this stuff is real. And we really see both distraction and, um, and deception are trying to, just trying to get Nehemiah away from the work of rebuilding the city of God. It's so huge for us as we go about working with Jesus to build his church. See, Jesus is building his church, but we're co-labouring with him. So it's, this stuff is massive. Satan is not happy about it <laughs> because the whole plan for the church is that it becomes like a city on a hill that shines out. The, the beauty, the wonder, the love, the compassion, the grace, the truth, the, the peace of Jesus Christ to a desperate world. That's God's plan. That the, the world would get to know 
how great God is by seeing God's people together, loving one another and expressing the nature of Jesus. And so as the church attempts to go about that, man, Satan's going to do all he can to destroy that. It's really important stuff. And even if you're here as someone and you're not quite sure if you are a Christian or a believer, you know, and you're kind of thinking, you know, you're just here checking things out. You need to know this stuff. This is big. It's really important stuff. I'm not going to kind of hide these things from you. This is a really big deal. Um, And so just some examples, you know, our relationships with one another Really massive, because Jesus said, when the world sees the way you love each other, then they'll know you really are authentically my disciples. So our relationships with one another, the way we relate, whether we are truthful with each other, compassionate to each other, whether we bear with one another, and all of these things are massively important. And you bet that Satan would love to distract us from that and sideline the whole thing of relationships. Oh, just get the job done. Don't worry about relationships, just get the job done. Just do, just do the stuff. And, you know, oh, yeah, I know that person's really hurt you, um, but just avoid them. What does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, go and speak to him. That's really important. Someone's wronged you, go and speak to him. Don't just avoid them. I'll get the job done. I'll go on a different road. That's right. We'll serve on different weeks. No. If your brother sinned against you, go and speak to him. Or if your brother's just plain annoying, they've not sinned against you, but they're just annoying. Bear with them. Don't swap rotors. <laughs> yeah? Bear with them. See, it's really, it's, it's big stuff, or not just, even just relationships, but you know, gospel communities, we're looking to say, look, we really want to gear the church around mission, because man, there's a mission to be engaged with. So we, we, we want to we throw our energy, our passion into this stuff. It's a big deal. Satan's not going to want that to fly. He's not going to want it to succeed. He's going to want to just bring distraction there. Or just kind of give it a skewed thing. We've got to be on guard for that. You've got to be aware of that. You've got to be awake to that. Because this is real. This is warfare. It's going to make you just think, oh, don't, don't worry about all that. Let those guys do that stuff. You haven't got to get involved. Well, you know what? Actually, it's something we're doing together. It's massive. Really important. Even things like tea and coffee and hospitality and welcome on a Sunday. It's huge. You know, it's huge. The whole aim with the welcome and then the tea and the coffee and the hospitality... What is the aim? Here's the aim, right? Although the building, the school, is not the house of God, agreed, it's the people, while we occupy it for these three or four hours on a Sunday, in a sense it kind of becomes like the house of God, yeah? It's, it's, it's not, it's a school, I get it. But it kind of becomes holy, it becomes a place where God's, God's it should feel like God's front room, yeah? Because the church is the household of God. So it should feel like God's place, God's gaff, Yeah? That's what it should feel like. So, so the welcome team, what, 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 what is their role? Their role is to show you what kind of welcome you get when you come back to God, when you come to God. Because you come to God's gaff. Yeah? So when you come in, that's the kind of welcome. So when we read about Luke 15, when that, when that um, younger son had spent his whole time loose living, reckless, wasting all the money, when he came back, what happened? The father ran towards him and smothered him with kisses and threw a party. The welk, that's what the welcome team, they're not, they're not necessarily running towards you, you know, but there's that sense of genuine extending the love and the warmth of God because that's what God's like. God isn't just like, good to see you. Good to see you, but we'll see how you do. See, that's not the heart of God. Because God is, God is wise and God knows that what that does that, that whole approach just kills people. It just sets you, it sets you up for a fall because suddenly you, people are breathing down your neck. He welcomes you, embraces you as his child 
draws you in, freely forgives you, makes you one of his own, as you come to him, as you come to him in, 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 in repentance, and say, Lord, I'll just, I want to follow you. you know, like that younger son, what have I been doing? You come to God, he draws you into his embrace and he keeps you there and then he wants you to know there's a massive celebration going on about having you home. And we do all that stuff first and then, yeah, come and get involved in what I'm doing. It's not stiff or cold or formal. It's actually quite undignified, the love of God. It's important we understand that. So these guys on Tea and Coffee and all these guys, they've got a job to communicate this the heart of God. It's massive. So to be distracted from that, oh, well, I know I'm on this week, but, you know, I, I just can't make it. Or, you know, I'm too tired. Or, no, it's huge. You're there to communicate the heart of God. It's massive. It's massive. Just for, for everyone, not just for those who are kind of coming to find God. Everyone. Just to show you. You are welcome in the presence of God. Do you know that? If you come, you come to God, you come to God through Jesus Christ, you are welcome in the presence of God. And it's so important that we, that we get it, that we understand that these things will be uh, opposed and that, we, and that we stand strong in them. So there's all these things coming at Nehemiah, and then it says in verse 15, uh, um, it's moved. It says they, the thing got built in 52 days, the whole job. It's all done. How did that happen? With all of this crazy warfare, opposition, attacks, pressure, tension, 52 days the whole thing is done. Well, in the midst of the chaos, there was a supernatural building work that was taking place. And you need to understand that the church is supernatural by its nature. It doesn't just grow when things are going smooth. And you as believers, you don't just grow when things are going smooth. In fact, here's a secret, you grow more when they're not. You might think, you, you know, when you're at the Bible week and you're kind of, you know, you're just flowing, you know. You're at the Christian conference and, you know, you just feel so spiritual. You think you're growing. You're not growing. You're having a good time. You're not growing, okay? You're enjoying God. The growth comes when you're stretched out. The growth comes when you're squeezed, when you're pressurised. And you, and you just hold the line, believe in him, trust in him. That's when you grow. That's how it works. Now, there are these beautiful seasons where we get to enjoy the growth God has given and the Bible calls it like a spacious place and, you know, you run around meadows singing, great. <laughs> great. Okay. But the growth, the growth comes through the refining seasons and, uh, and so it's important that we recognise that, that God will build you as an individual through all kinds of chaos. Don't think, oh, when it gets smooth, then, I'll, then I can grow and mature. It's not how it works. God just builds you through the craziness as you trust him. It's really simple as that. So I'm still going to trust you. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to do anything crazy, you know, just flip out in fear or in anger. I'm just going to hold the line, just trust you. God will build you beautifully. And God will do that with the church. You do it corporately. Yeah? So churches go through seasons. Sometimes it's like, man, our life's tough. It's all right. Just, just hold the line. Brings us through. He's doing it. What a relief. But I just want to, I want to drill down and look at how does Nehemiah himself overcome these onslaughts, okay? So the first thing when they try and distract him, come, let's meet in that funny place. We're going to have a chat. Come on. And they try and sort of, they try and court him a bit. They try and sort of almost flatter him a bit. It's like a bit of a tension. Nehemiah, we just want to have a chat with you. Come, let's talk. Uh, we tried to take you earlier. That didn't work. Fair enough. Let's have a chat. And I love this where he just says this. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? while I leave it and come down to you. I love that. Here's a man who knows he is about something. Here's a man who knows that what he is about is glorious and actually deserving of his every energy. 
And that's quite a rare thing in our time because there's so much distraction. I mean, so much distraction. Because obviously we are information saturated, constantly getting messages saying, you must do this or you haven't lived. You must experience that. Or, you know, wow, before you die, 101 things you must do and all of that kind of thing. And it can just pull you in so many directions. I've got to have a gap year, but I want to go there, there, there. I have six gap years. You know, it's like, man, alive. And it can just, it can create a a complexity in your spirit that is just not life-giving at all. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I said, oh, that sounds like a nice option. I've not been to that the plane of Ono for a while, go and see the guys, you know. I've never done that. You know, it's like I'm about a great work. I can't come down. I'm into something. I'm into something. And in fact, I'm so into it, I'm geekily into it. I'm into this thing. And I'm not going to leave it. Why should this stop? Well, I come and chat with you. Why should the work stop? And there's something commendable in his spirit here about the work of God. Why should the work stop? Well, I go off and have this experience that I must have, otherwise I haven't lived. Why? The work's more important. Now, the work isn't to just be going, it's not that. It's not just like Steph's plan is to just kind of kill everyone. No, it's not what I'm saying. The work itself is to be a joy-filled thing, is to be community relationship. It's not just do, do, do. But, but by the same token, as we love one another, God's taken us somewhere. But actually, you know what? That's the important thing that God is doing. And there are seasons where God draws people in and then he sends them out. He draws them in and he sends them out. Great, we bless that, we love that. But while God's got you here, be here. That's a novel idea. It's not really, because I know you are. But to the spirit of the age, it can be quite a novel thing. Be here. Be here with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength. Do you want to grow? Well, then be here, because then when the next season comes, you'll be, you'll be equipped for it. If you're just spending the whole time, oh, kind of there, but I'm kind of here and I'm kind of there, then if the next season does come, you won't be equipped for that. I cannot come down. I'm about a great... You know, we're about a great work here. Look around you. Look around. Now, actually turn your heads, you crazy old beans. <laughs> oh, so funny. I look around you and you'll go. <laughs> look around you. See, it kind of looks kind of normal, doesn't it? Kind of look on the surface, kind of just a group of different people sat in the school hall. We're about a great work. God is doing something. God is, God is doing something here. I just want to call you in from the fringes, if you are on the fringes, and just say, come up on the wall. Let's, let's do some stuff. Let's do some stuff. It's great. It's taxing at times. Yep. Times it's confusing. Times it can hurt a bit. You've got to come through some stuff. It's a great work. It's a great work. How, 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 I can think of another way of convincing you other than saying this. Jesus is building his church. It's what he's doing. Through the building of the church, he's going to extend his kingdom in beautiful ways. People's lives will be changed. Restored, mended, healed, brought back together. There will be reconciliation. There will be glorious outpourings of his spirit. There will be signs and wonders. All of these things that are the kingdom, it's God's plan to show them forth through the church. Wonderful. Wonderful. So he just says, actually, it comes four times. Come on, four times. No, 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 no. He's anchored. He's just anchored in it. Be anchored in it. Be anchored in it. Whatever you do, the Bible says, do it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And I'm not talking about here fleshly striving, you know, when you're just, you're just killing yourself to try and prove yourself in, to yourself. Do you know? 
or to some voice, you don't even know what it is, but you've always just, you know, or some imaginary thing, or to your parents, or whatever. I'm not talking about that. We live, we live by the power of the Spirit. There's a grace in it. There's a joy in it. There's a pace in it. There's a rest in it. Absolutely. But we're in it. We're in it. So that's the, and then there comes this sort of deception where they start saying to things like, oh, we've heard that you're going to set yourself up as a king. And it, this accusation, oh, we're going to tell the real king about this. And this accusation starts. And at this point, if you were Nehemiah, what would you start doing? How many of you would start freaking out? Oh, we've heard about you. Yeah, you want to be the big one. Yeah, you want to be the big guy or the big lady. We've heard about you want to put yourself first. Yeah. How many, how many as people might have said that to you? You may have even just heard that in your own spirit, that kind of accusation. Nehemiah is utterly dismissive. I love Nehemiah. He just says, you're inventing them out of your own mind. He just dismisses it. He's just like, bang, whacks it out of the park and carries on. You, know, you have to have an element about you that's dismissive of that kind of nonsense if you're a Christian. Because it's going to come in. Oh, look at you, Steph. Oh, look. Oh, yeah. oh, look. You can't stop preaching. What's up with you? Go away to Turkey. Why can't someone else do it? Why you got a little video? Oh, <laughs> oh you think you're the guy now. Do you know what? Be utterly dismissive of it. Utterly dismissive. Why? Because it's nonsense. It's nonsense. So you've got to be able to do it. You've got to be able to do it. Whatever way it comes for you, you've got to be able to do it. Because it'll come. And there's always murky motives, right? Our motives are never 100% pure, are they? There's always a little bit of silly stuff in there. You know, I find myself having the most embarrassing daydreams at something. Oh, listen, you still, you still <laughs> caught up with that delusion of grandeur. It's humiliatingly embarrassing, yeah? But actually, I know that's not, that's not why I do what I do. That's not why I do what I do for Jesus. So I'm, dis- so I'm dismissive of that. You've got to be dismissive of that stuff if you're going to win. And then, and then he says this, and then they try and get him in the temple. Oh, this guy says, oh, you've got to come in this temple. And we'll close the door and we'll have this meeting because they're going to try and kill you. Well, I love this. He said, first of all, he says, he says, should such a man as I run away? He's like, look, do you know what? I'm here by God's decree. Should I run? There's a humility and obedience about it, man. He knows where he is because, well, God's got me here, so I can't, I can't leave it. No matter how bad it gets, I can't leave it. I mean, I, I, can, I can totally relate to that sense of compulsion. We, we can't go. We can't just stop. Can we? We can't just say, we can't just say I'm not doing this anymore. Yet why? Because it wasn't our idea to come here. God's put us here. So I don't, we don't get, we can't go till he moves us on. Now, I'm not saying I want to, but there have been moments. There have been moments where you think, flip. Either I don't know how to take this thing forward anymore. I know I did. Or, you know, the whole cancer thing. When they, when they had cancer and, you know, three young kids and all the crazy, you know, all the mass. You think, God, it'd be easier to just sort of, I don't know, just... Go to Cornwall or something, you know. You, you know, there's those thoughts, you know, you can have that, can't you? It's like, actually, we don't, no, I'm not mine. I'm not mine, we're not ours, we're his. I can't just, I'm doing that now, I'm, I'm his. I do what he, I, we do what he says. Now, I'm no big hero in that, I know that, you know, I know so many of you so well, you're, you're registering because it's your experience, but you've got to, you're not yours. You've been bought at a price, you belong to Jesus. 
So I don't just get to say, oh, we'll go off there now, we'll do that. No. No, that is presumptuous. It's arrogant. It's acting as if I'm, I'm my own. I'm not my own. I'm his. So we seek him. Say, Lord, what are you saying? I'm, now, I'm not saying I have to pray every time, or what, you know, what socks am I going to put on? It's not like that. But the big decisions, the directive stuff for life, no, it's submitted to Christ. Look what you're saying. It's, near, it's just like Nehemiah. And then, and then he says, so you're trying to get me scared, and you want me to go into the temple. He wasn't allowed in the temple. He wasn't a priest. So he's saying, what man such as I could even go into the temple and live? You're saying let's go in the temple because you're going to get killed. If I go in the temple, I'll get killed. We're not allowed in there. The presence of God will strike me dead. So actually he understands. Cause just because there's intimidation or fear, I can't just start sinning. I can't just start sinning because it's a hard time. Yeah? Because it's a hard season. I can't just do stuff now that God has said I can't do. Why? Because I fear God. So you can't, you can't do it. You can't say, oh, well, you know, the pressure's too much now. I'm going to go and look at some porn. No, you can't. If you fear God, you can't do that. You can't just say, well, it's a hard time. What do you mean it's a hard time? Who ever said it was going to be an easy time? It's warfare. You can't... You don't get to do that. You, 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 or you can't just... You, you can't just hold on to unforgiveness. Oh, well, you, you know, this has happened, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that. Well, you can't do that. Why? Because, well, because you, 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 say that you, you say that actually you believe that your sin took the Son of God to the cross to die for you. That, that your sin meant that happened. Well, you can't. You, you, you can't just hold on to that. You've got to, we've got to release being forgiveness. You see, just because it's hard, you can't go and sin. That's the fear of God. You think, no, I can't do that. Oh, I perish the thought. That, that's, the, that's the mentality. The fear of God is the bottom line. And then verse 13 is the key. We're going to wrap things up with this. He said, for this purpose that man was hired, that I should be afraid and then act in this way and sin. Whenever fear gets in your spirit, you start doing crazy stuff and it always ends up being sin. God, God's desire for you is that you are not driven by fear. We carry fear naturally because of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. From the moment they sinned, they ate the fruit that God had forbidden, then they heard the presence of God walking in the garden. They ran, they tried to sow fig leaves together to cover themselves. They're afraid of being exposed. They heard God, they ran and hid in the bush because they just didn't want to face him. And there's just this fear of exposure, this fear of being seen for what we are. We carry it in us naturally as a result of our fallenness. Jesus comes to redeem us from that. He's not come to bring a few more fig leaves into your life. I'll cover up a bit more, old deal. No, he's come to make things brand new. He's come to lift you up out of that fallen state that you might be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's come to remake you. He's come to start the whole... He has come to restore humanity. In Christ, humanity is redeemed. He's come to redeem it and get it right. Working from the inside out. That's what he's come to do. That's the thing. And I tell you, fear is a killer. Fear creates independent people because they're too scared to trust Jesus. Fear creates harsh people because they're too scared to make mistakes themselves and let others make mistakes. Fear creates anxious people because they're too scared to let Jesus shepherd and guide them. Fear creates uptight people because they're too scared to believe that Jesus is in charge. Fear creates hyperactive people because they're too scared to rest. And fear creates burnt out people because they're too scared to say no or 
I can't do that. Fear creates angry and bitter people because they're too scared to let Jesus heal the wounds caused by sin in their life. It's a killer. Jesus comes to save you from fear and slavery to fear. You have not been given a spirit to make you a slave again to fear, the Bible says, but a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father, a deep and profound cry from the heart whereby you know I am home. I have been brought home. I no longer have to prove myself to other people, to myself, to God. I no longer have to run away from this, that or the other. I can be and live and dwell and abide in him and out of that place life can flow. That's the gospel. Jesus comes to bring you eternal life. And eternal life is not just eternal by its duration, it's eternal by its quality. It starts now. And eternal life comes now. I'm going to end with, just read you some very short scriptures Jesus said about the eternal life that he brings and we're done. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do not labour for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And finally, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. It's all about Jesus. He's the climax of God's purpose. And he's come to deliver us from distraction by saying, you've been made for me. Live for me. Come to deliver us from deception by saying, I'm the truth. Measure everything against the plumb line of me. And he's come to rescue you from destruction by bringing you eternal life. We just need to fix our eyes on him and, and, and really drill, drill. It's not a superficial thing. It's not like a cliche, fix your eyes on Jesus. It, it, it means that you engage your whole being. It means that you look at areas where you know you're not and you, you call in every resource to wean you off of that, to pull you away from that, that you might live by faith and know the joy of that. It's about working with God and together with God. Through that, God will do incredible things with us. Amen? Amen.